Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. Good evening, church. Thank you, Isaac and the worship team, just for bringing us um, into the throne room of God, is the way I'd put it. Um, really just... What a blessing we have to come together and to sing with one another, um, to not just be a people that comes to have a good time, but we get to sing praises to God, we get to sing worship with one another, to one another. Um, so just praising God for that. Uh, and I want to commend to you, even as um, just I think of this morning, and, and just commend to you, if you haven't got the opportunity to listen to this morning's sermon from my brother Mark, I really would commend it to you. It just lifted my soul up. And uh, if you haven't seen it, it has been uploaded on our website, and um, it has been added to um, our Facebook and YouTube, if you want to take a look there, but not now. Um, but now, please, we're going to be in the book of Romans, uh, if you'll turn to Romans chapter 5 uh, for this evening. And so as you turn there, I want you to come and, and ask the question, how do we come to the passage we find today? Uh, Romans 1 speaks of man's rejection of God and God punishing them by letting them be given over to their sinfulness. But not only this, in Romans chapter 2, we see that God will be the good and righteous judge who will judge all, and this includes the Jewish people who disobey. And so in essence, God is going to judge absolutely everyone. Now, this is confirmed in Romans chapter 3, where all are found to be guilty before God, which means that all fall under the wrath of God. It then transitions to say that there is justification, though. Despite everyone falling under the wrath of God, there is justification, a being declared right before God because of Jesus. And this justification is acquired not because of works, not because the Jews followed the law perfectly, but in fact it is required and acquired by faith. And so in chapter 4 we get this explanation and really see this picture of how that Abraham is the example for all that he was declared righteous by faith, having received justification through faith. And so hence we lead into today's passage uh, with the words that begin the passage, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and so not forgetting what has come before, uh, let, let us read from Romans chapter 5, reading from verse 1 to 11. Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare 
even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let us come before the, word, before the Lord in prayer uh, before we get into the Word. Church, I want to invite you to, to be an active participant this evening. And so uh, I want to ask you to pray right now that, that the Word that is spoken tonight would be meaningful to you. That God would use it meaningfully to your heart and to your soul this evening. And then church, I'd like to ask you to pray for me, that God would use me effectively, that I would not be a hindrance to His Word coming to you tonight. Father, we come before you this evening. Would you... Display to our hearts the richness of what is found in this text. Lord, would I speak only what you give to me. Spirit, would you speak through me and in me, Lord. Praying this in your precious name. Amen. At our young adults Bible study, every single week, Isaac comes up with the infamous question. And every single week, I forget it's coming. Um, But this past week, Isaac asked us the question... Why, or have you ever felt sorry for yourself, and why? And so instantly what came to my mind was I like to make some overnight oats. And so what I was doing is I put the oats together, I put some delicious peanut butter, some honey, some yogurt, it's really good, raisins, you must try it. Um, Put all of this together, and as I put this all together, go to put the last ingredient, the milk, in, and out comes this splosh. And there, out of all that goodness, everything that I was going to enjoy absolutely ruined. And suddenly I was just so despondent. I was like, why? Come on, after everything I've done, all this effort I've put in, now I'm in this place where I can't even eat the joyful, good food that I was given. I think often we come to the same point in our Christian lives where where we see this richness. We're like, there's so much to be gained, so much to be found, so much to see. And then suddenly we lose a bit of that joy. We get a bit of that sploshed milk on our lives as we encounter the world that we live in. And so this is a bit of what I'm hoping tonight, that as we encounter the the sploshed milks of our lives, that we would find reason to rejoice. And so pretty much the whole whole sermon for tonight is going to be me going through different reasons to rejoice. And so my first point for this evening is reasons to rejoice. To be able to access these reasons, we need to see that there is not a single command in this entire passage. 
Paul will multiple times repeat, we rejoice in. So he's going to repeat that phrase, we rejoice in. This does not mean that you should not rejoice, but rather what it means is that everything Paul's about to say, all that he's about to line up for us tonight, is inevitably going to produce rejoicing. It is the natural outflow, the natural outcome of viewing everything that Paul is about to tell us. It should create that smirk that a young couple has when they receive the message from their new partner. It should be that same excitement within us as we see these different things built forward. And so we're going to see these different statements of fact laid before us, declared truths for those who have been justified by faith. And so what then are the reasons that we can have joy in salvation? The first reason we might have joy in salvation is because we have obtained, and and the exact point is obtaining and living at peace with God. Each person, that is you and me, stood as God's enemies. Why? Because we missed God's perfect and holy standard. We have actively and insistently opposed God. Therefore, we have great reason to fear. It takes me back to those times where I was a bit too sharp with my mouth and uh, I would back chat my mom. I knew in that moment that there was no peace between us. I knew at that time that I had wronged my mom and trouble was coming. Except we didn't just do this to another person. No, we went and we turned against the almighty God. For although we knew God, we did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But we became futile in our thinking, and our foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, we became fools and exchanged the glory of God for a lie. And we worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And because of all of this, we would have great reason to fear. Except the passage says that we have peace with God. I'll say exactly soon who has peace with God, but but this is something in which we stand. It is secure. It is abiding. When Paul speaks of it, he speaks of a grace that we have been introduced into. It is a rich gift, not having to live in fear of God's wrath as his enemies, but to have crossed that no man's land and now to live in perfect harmony with God. Why? We now get to do this because we have obtained access to this peace. I can remember when I was still studying at Tux that they used to have, they still do have these fingerprint scanners. And so if you did not have a fingerprint on their system, there was no way you were going to be getting into that campus. And so in the same way, for those of us who have believed, we can have confidence. Why? Because it is Christ's fingerprint that has been placed on that scanner. A fingerprint that will never be removed, never be be taken away, never be changed, but a fingerprint that takes us from being outside of the kingdom of God, changes our state from those who are without hope and without God in the world, from those who are far off, but to those who have been brought near with the dividing wall of hostility completely destroyed. Oh, what joy to know 
that we may be found to be at peace with God. But this is not all. We don't only have results in this life of having peace with God, but we also have second uh, sub-point, second reason to have joy is confident expectation of eternal salvation. Confident expectation of eternal salvation. We read further in the second part of chapter 2, sorry, chapter 5, verse 2, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The word here used for hope is to have an expectation of what is sure, a deep inner sense of surety as to what has been promised. It's this image, I get this picture in my mind of this kid who cannot sleep on Christmas Eve because they know when they get up tomorrow morning, that Christmas is definitely going to be under that tree. In, in my family, we used to open Christ, presents on Christmas Eve, so we didn't get that same excitement. But what we tended to do is buy the present like three weeks earlier, so I already knew it was coming. But it's this great certainty, this great expectation that when you unwrap that present, it will be there. And we have confidence that the greatest president, the greatest president of all time to spend an eternity with God is set before us. We have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of this inheritance until we acquire possession of it. We are a people who can face this world knowing that we have so much greater to come. And so therefore, as we are a people who knows there is so much greater to come, we can live, as Jabu so aptly reminded us a couple of weeks ago, we can live differently in this world because we know that this world is not our own. Our greatest hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? You see, we do not run this life as those who are blind, floundering in the things of the earth like money or success, wishing for a better tomorrow. No, certainly not. We live with those who have certainty that having been freed from the penalty of sin, having been freed from the power of sin, there will come a day where we will one day be freed from the presence of sin. And then we will walk joyfully with our Savior into eternity. Why? Because I've done well? No, because He says that I have access. This is what it means to have a joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. This expectation that we have, though, is made more certain as we look to our third reason that we can rejoice. And our third reason to rejoice is suffering. It it seems strange to say that suffering is a reason to rejoice. And I do acknowledge and admit that. But I want you to follow the beauty of the process that Paul here describes in verse 3 to 5 in which God has chosen for his people. You see, we as people of God face a variety of sufferings from loss of a relationship or even financial strain to loss of family members. Sometimes it's things that we hoped we would achieve, things that we thought we would make of our lives. For some of you, it's just assignments that you're struggling with that keep getting you down. 
These create what this passage and this word, this word suffering described in this passage, it creates this feeling of constriction. Get this picture in your mind of like an anaconda squeezing you. That's what our sufferings tend to do with us. They tend to squeeze us. They push you to your limits. They try you. But for the believer, there is steadfastness. We see in this passage that Paul says that suffering produces perseverance. It produces endurance. And so for the believer, there is steadfastness. The believer is seen to hold on to the things of Christ, to remain in their belief of Him and His work in their lives. Yes, life might be hard. Yes, it seems like you're at the deepest, darkest pit. Yes, it seems like you're about to fall off the edge and fail, but Christ is still there, and there is still that glimmer of hope sitting in Him. And so we as Christians and believers are found not to give up. Why? Because God's love, as we read in that same passage further down in verse 6 or 7, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The scriptures say that the love of God has been poured, and, and this word poured is to gush over, to be overwhelmingly filled with the love of God through the Spirit. This love of God, which overflows, is what sustains us in those dark times. It is what give us, gives us that small light at the end of the tunnel. And so out of this endurance produced for us comes character. I think, Percy, this word character is not greatly translated, but the right idea we should have as we read this word is proof of genuineness. I think of those adverts where it says, tried and tested. I can remember watching a show a while back, and so what they did is they gave people a number of pies in front of them, and they said, you need to guess what is in this pie. What they'd done is they'd filled some pies with marbles, some with some toothpaste, and they left one pie as a steak pie. And so just looking at it, you had a guess. But it wasn't until they had squeezed those pies, until they had taken out what was inside the pie, that they actually knew what the pie consisted of. And so as we as Christians are squeezed, as the sufferings push on us, as they constrict us, what comes out of us proves whether we are a Christian or not. It's almost this statement, uh, as I've seen in just on wallets or handbags, it's a statement of genuine leather. God uses suffering to give us that stamp of genuine Christian. That's what he does in sufferings. That's what he points us towards. Endurance and suffering is God placing that stamp on us. This stamp leads us back to our previous reason to rejoice. Why? Because we can know through our sufferings that there is greater certainty of that eternal salvation which is to come. We can look and see that my faith has been tested and found genuine, but it has led to a greater certainty that there will be praise and glory when Christ returns. I love the word used repeatedly here for produced. The word that Paul is using here has this idea, it says, to bring down to an end point or to a decisive finality. And so as we suffer that, and we see that proven genuineness of our faith through our suffering, there is a decisive finality of obtaining that promise at the end of days. 
It is brought to an end point. Our sufferings come and lead us towards hope on that final day. Where we won't have to have shame or disappointment because we have a confident assurance that salvation is ours. But I want to see that it's even greater than this. God doesn't just pour His love out upon us through the Spirit, but He sets His Spirit in us. I love this entire passage. This passage is so Trinitarian in nature. And so what God does, He takes Father, Son, and Spirit, the love that existed for all eternity between Father, Son, and Spirit, and He says, I'm going to bring you into this. Spirit indwelling us as we are brought into this relationship of love that has existed from all eternity to, to, to eternity. And so what does he do in this? He says, I am not only going to authenticate your faith, but I'm going to include you in a relationship. We get to be a part of a relationship that is so much greater than just a stamp of approval. And it's our sufferings that confirm this to be true. It's our sufferings that confirm this to be true. Church, how great a blessing is it that even in our sufferings, there is produced joy. What other religion, what other belief, what other person can say that? That even in our sufferings, we might have joy. I, I went and I was speaking to a couple a couple of weeks ago, and they were celebrating their 65th anniversary, um, which I, I hope the Lord will bless me that richly one day. But they were celebrating their 65th anniversary, and the, the wife just came alongside me, and she said, Carsten, do you know how faithful God has been in 65 years of marriage? And the only thing I could think is, man, this is definitely not a couple that has had the good life. There's definitely been sufferings. There's definitely been deep, dark times. But all that suffering, what it produced was a worship of God that says, look how faithful He is. And man, my soul was filled. But we get to rejoice, not only in peace, not only in confident expectation of salvation, not only in suffering, but also in the fourth reason to rejoice, the gospel. You see, our assurance of salvation is further secured when we come to see God's love displayed in the gospel. Well, what is it that's shown to us in this passage? Uh, we're reading from verse 6 to 8, so if you want to follow me there. Uh, verse 6 to 8, I'll read it as follows. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so whilst we were still weak, and further explained sinners, whilst we refuse to respect what is holy, whilst we refuse to give God praise that he deserved, and whilst we devoted ourselves to sin, while we worshiped the creation and not the creator, while we were fallen short of the glory of God and dead in our trespasses and sins, and whilst he worshiped at the altars of popularity, money, laziness, lust, perfection, religious piety, and any number of idols we choose to lay before ourselves. At that time, at that time, 
In one sense, this moment is at that time he chooses to die. For that person, he chooses to die. But at the same time, there's another sense in which we see that that time. I want to pause and I want you to see that God's love is not ours. God's love does not waver and it does not change. He, in his love, sets out a plan before the foundation of the world that he appointed at a time in history, once the fullness of time had come, that Christ would come and die. It's not a backup plan. It's not a, I hope this works, but a plan for all time for redemption. That's what God calls us towards. And it is at this time that he dies for the ungodly. That would be you and me. So desperately undeserving are we of this death that Paul goes and he gives us a picture of what this looks like. And he says that, that we who are ungodly, we, we might just die for someone if we think they're good enough. If we think they're going for just noble enough a cause, maybe, just maybe, we might be willing to die for that person. But we get this extreme contrast between that willingness to die and Christ. No, Christ goes way beyond this. Christ supersedes this. He doesn't wait for us to become right. He doesn't wait for us to become good. Us who could be in the presence of holy people, contrasted to Christ who could not be in the presence. God who could not be in the presence of holy people takes the fall for those broken and wicked people. This is a sacrifice so great, so vast, so abundant that the word tells us that it shows God's love. Shows. It's, in other words, that, that from the day that Jesus died up until all eternity, it will keep on showing God's love. That amazing death will keep on as everybody reflects on. I think of the angel revelation as he gets a glimpse of the Lord and he says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. From now till eternity, we'll say, praise God because of that love that died whilst we were still sinners. What great confidence do we have? Even greater than this, that if Christ would die for us whilst we were rotten and detestable, much more, and this word that he uses says, multitudinously, abundantly more, now that we have been declared right with God, do we have confidence? Confidence in what? that we shall be maintained and continued by him. After achieving this much greater display of dying on the cross, we who come before this, we who live in this world, we who so often go through trials and depths might have great confidence that if Christ was willing to come and to die for you and me, why would he not sanctify me? Why would he not glorify me? Why would he not take me with him to all eternity? If he has done the much greater thing, we can have certainty in the much lesser thing. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives a, a description of a portion of this passage, and he says it's so much greater than I can, so please bear with me as I read uh, and extend a quote from him. To glory in the Lord is the result of seeing that we are without strength, that we are totally incapable of anything spiritual or pleasing to God in any way at all, that our nature as the result of sin is so polluted and vile and foul that our best actions are sinful that by nature can do nothing whatsoever about his own salvation. 
But above all, seeing that our salvation is entirely of God and due alone to God's everlasting and eternal love, what a love! What shows and commends it is that He should do anything for people who have gotten themselves into such a position of shame and utter helplessness. Originally, they were made and created in the image of God, but they have become weak, utterly incapable, in a state of total inability. And yet, in spite of that, God sent His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, not only into the world, but even to die for us on the cross on Calvary's hill. Love so amazing. Love so divine. Church, what greater assurance or reason for joy do we need beyond this? What greater, what more do we need? And so naturally this links to our closing points, and I've chosen to put it as a separate point because I really think it wraps everything up. Our ultimate reason to joy, Joyce. God, the ultimate reason to rejoice as we travel through verse 11. Verse 11 says, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I'd argue again that those first two words, that more than, or first two years, more than that, is not an exact translation. I think a better translation is not only so. What Paul is trying to say, he's saying, I've given you a list of reasons to rejoice. I've put these things before you, but not only so, but there is one more reason to rejoice. A necessary one, as it is the reason and the one from whom all blessings flow. The Baptist Catechism puts forward the question, what is the chief end of man? To which the answer is, a man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is the end of all our enjoyments. As we reach the tippy top of that mountain, our tip of enjoyment is to enjoy God Himself. And we get to do that forever. Lloyd-Jones again summarizes, a man who knows that he has been reconciled to God, that his sins are forgiven, that he has been made a child of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, and especially through what he did on the cross, surely such a man must of necessity glory and rejoice and exalt in God. What a blessing, what a privilege it is, church, that God doesn't just give us His blessings, but He says, I give you myself. So much greater, so much more rich. I remembered earlier that I said that this is such a rich Trinitarian passage. We see here that the Father sends the Son, that He might appease the Father's wrath, and it is delivered to us through the Holy Spirit. Each person of the Godhead, of the triune yet, working in our salvation. We see here that the love of the Father is deeply shown to all who will believe. And so as we come to application, I want to remind you what I said at the start of the message. There is not a single command in this passage. But even more than that, most of these verses are written in the passive tense. I'll explain what that means now. For you who may be doubting or joyless, for that joyless and doubting believer, my call is not to rejoice. That's not what I want to call you tonight. 
But simply what I want you to do is I want you to take a look. I want you to look upon that cross. I want you to think upon what Christ has done for you. And as you think upon what Christ has done for you, as you look to that cross, as you're reminded that I was a sinner, redeemed and brought to hope, it will produce rejoicing. That's what the passage tells us. As we come to the sense and why I mention that everything is passive is because we did nothing. God did absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. And so all we need to do is sit and glory in the majesty of God. That's all we're called to do in this passage. We get to be beneficiaries of the greatest inheritance of all time. But even as we are beneficiaries of the greatest inheritance, we need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves often. If you're anything like me, I'm so prone to forget it. The second that first stumbling block comes, the second life doesn't go my way, I go, God, why are you doing this now? And so we need to preach that gospel to ourselves often. We need to stir it up to our souls and remind us of what God has done for us. For you, the unbeliever, I want to say that tonight none of this applies to you. You still sit here tonight as an enemy of God, and you will face judgment on the final day. But for you too, there is hope. If today you will turn from your wicked ways, if you will repent and believe, no one is too far gone. It says here that those who believe in Christ will find reconciliation with God, taken from enemies to friends. And so you too have the opportunity tonight to repent and believe and obtain that same confidence of salvation that the believers here tonight have. And so I want to close this message reading the first verse and refrain of the classic hymn, And Can It Be, as I feel it really just captures a lot of what this passage is about. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my God, should die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that you, my God, should die for me? Let us pray. Lord, as... I come before you, God, as I'm just so reminded of this text, God, reminded what, what you have done, Lord. I pray that you would forgive us for those times that, that Lord, we might be lost in self-pity, Lord. For those times, Lord, that, that we walk away from you. For those times that, Father, we do not have joy. But I pray, God, as you reminded us this evening that you died for us whilst we were ungodly, I pray that we wouldn't feel like we need to be godly enough to come to you, God. But that, God, we would find these reasons to rejoice and we would have our souls lifted up to you and that we would be called to worship you and praise you and adore you for every single thing that you are, what you've done for us, Lord, and what you've called us in towards in having a relationship with you. And so, Lord, even as we worship now, as we continue to sing in songs, would you lift our souls up to you as we praise you in response to all 
that you have done. Praising this Father in your precious name. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.